Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to invest in yourself by tuning in today. As the name of our show says, this is the Business Creators Radio Show, and our listeners are business creators. And we have a number of different types of listeners. We have our entrepreneurs, our small business owners, our local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches and consultants. We have the folks who help others create their businesses. And on the other side of that coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who love to have your own hands-on levers as you market and grow your business. If you are one or more of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us help more business creators just like you. And over 130 episodes await you with fresh content added every single week. Now, today, we're going to get into a topic that is of great interest to a lot of our business creators, and it has to do with knowing what your business is worth before you sell it. There are two places where this particular issue of knowing the saleability value of your business comes into play. Number one, if you want to sell your business, maybe you want to move on to something else, maybe you want to retire, maybe you're deliberately building the business with the idea that a larger company will buy it out and you're going to have a great payday. There's many ways you can look at that. And then also when it comes to getting loans and funding for your business, what frequently comes up is how much is your business worth? And that's used to a degree to determine what kind of loan you could get for your business, whether it's a small business loan, an angel investor loan, or whatever type of loan you're looking for in order to grow your business. So to help us with that, I am so excited to have with us Randy Long of longbusinessadvisors.com. And he's going to tell us about knowing what your business is worth before you sell it. Just to tell you a little bit about Randy, and he has plenty to say for himself, so I'm going to make this brief. He is the CEO of longbusinessadvisors.com. He is an author and speaker. He's the creator of the Braveheart planning process, a certified financial planner, a certified exit planner. He has a Juris Doctor degree. He's a board member movie guide, and he's the father of five children, and he has a book that's in the process of coming out. So, Randy, first of all, welcome to Business Creators Radio Show, and tell us, what's the name of your new book? The name of the book is The Braveheart Exit, all Seven right. Steps to Your Family Business Legacy. Fantastic. Now, what I'd like to do here is, for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to get to know you yet, what I want to do is just take a quick step back, and I want to give them a chance to get to know you a little. So just tell us a little bit about maybe your journey and what has led you to the intersection of your brilliance and passion and what you're doing these days. Okay, great. So um, when I was growing up, my, my parents didn't have a whole lot of money, so I worked for other people. And I worked for a number of entrepreneurs, and I grew to really admire and respect them. Right. And as a result of that, I, I decided that I wanted to work with um, business owners over the course of my career. And to me, these guys and gals became what I call the brave heart or the heroes, if you will. And the idea um, that aligns with that is the concept that, that the small to medium-sized businesses provide most of the jobs in this country. They, they fight with the IRS. They you know, provide jobs and deal with employment issues. They deal with the regulation that big business and the government imposes down on us. 
and they basically, you know, they, they make it happen. They go out, write the checks, and they basically eat what they kill, and I, I respect that. Right. So my practice has been built around supporting and helping those people grow and transition businesses. Right. And I think that's very important because I said a lot of our listeners are looking at potentially selling their businesses or wanting to know the value of their business, whether it's to secure funding or whatever it is they're looking to do. And here's a sad thing that I discover. And in fact, I discovered this in my own business. and I'm in the process of rectifying it right now is even when business creators think they're leveraged, they have these this virtual team and they're outsourcing and they're leveraging and doing this and that and the other thing when it really comes down right. to and you look at the true value of the business without that person themselves in the business it collapses uh we have yes. a lot we That's have a right. lot of folks who uh even run coaching companies and consulting companies and they may have an army of consultants or what have you but without them at the center of it it can potentially disappear. There are many ways to overcome that, one of which is to create a library of recorded trainings, which can be purchased and resold. Uh, but all the sure. same, we find ourselves a little bit surprised the extent to which our businesses truly do rely upon us. And I've given a lot of thought to this, and I've been doing a lot of work in terms of how we're evolving the Business Creators Institute and what we're going to do for our business creators. But I have one more question for you, Randy, before we dive into the huge smorgasbord of information you're about to give us. Our okay. loyal listeners can hear the drum beat in the background because they know what's coming next. Here in the Business Creators Radio Show, we provide the tools, techniques, and strategies to help entrepreneurs quickly grow their businesses. A lot of our listeners tell me they have everything they need to implement anything that anybody tells them they need to do except for time and money. This is a question we ask every expert who appears on our show. And what I like is not only the variety of different answers, but also the variety of different ways the question is interpreted. So, Randy, how do time and money impact what you're going to share with us today? Uh, frankly. So the time has to do with, in my perspective, how you grow and manage your business. Our goal with our clients is to help them build a business that ultimately doesn't need them. That, that frees you up to be creative and to give you more personal time. And from my perspective, the most valuable commodity is time, not money. That's the right. first thing. Secondly, on the money front side, if you do a good job of preparing for an exit, and this takes three to five, maybe even seven to ten years, depending on the kind of business you have and the complexity involved, but if you put in the time uh, to prepare for an exit, you get paid back in millions, literally. Right. Yeah, that's very. That's absolutely very true. So, so tell me before we answer the, or rather before we ask the obvious question of, so how do I know what my business is worth? I want to clear up one thing. I want to define our terms as we get into this. So tell me what the heck is an exit planner? I mean, I know what a certified financial planner is. I have one. I have a tax planner too. But what's an exit planner? Sure. Yeah. So an exit planner credential, a CEXP it's called, a certified exit planner is, is what I'll call an add-on credential. And that means that, that you've got to have the foundational, one of the foundational credentials first. And one of, one of three, a certified financial planner, a certified public account, CPA, or you need to be an attorney. So you've got to have one of those foundational pieces in place. And then from there, because that lets basically everybody know you have at least, you know, um, planning skills and the right mindset to become an exit planner. And so then you've got to enter into the coursework basically um, out of – the company is out of Denver. It's called BEI, B as in right. boy, EI. 
And uh, John Brown is the guy that started this. I consider John the father of exit planning. Matter of fact, he writes the foreword to my book. And uh, I've been doing business with John for probably 20 years, but he's the one that, that basically created this industry. And frankly, it's the only credential that I really respect in the industry. Right. So when putting a price tag on your business, what is the very first question that exit planner Randy Long needs to know the answer to? In fact, where does the value of a business start? Right. Ultimately, the first question or, or the decision, if you will, that we ask is not so much about the business itself, but more of the questions are, when do I wish to transition? To whom will I transition? And then how much will I need to secure my financial independence? We start with those questions. And then, then we go back and we, we consider the resources, which is the value issue. We're going to consider the personal resources. What are you worth outside of your business? And then finally we're going to get to the question of the business, the valuation of the business itself. And the way I like to approach that is we typically will engage a mergers and acquisitions company or firm. And I like to have market value. Uh, the guys that are in the trenches that are the ones that, are, that take most of the businesses to sale, I want to get them to give me an idea of what they think the company is worth at this point in time and this, this point in the cycle and with your particulars of this business. Not a rule of thumb, not a mathematical formula, but what do we think we can sell this business within a year? So I like to engage the M&A firms to get uh, first pass on what they think the value is. And that becomes my starting point for the planning. Because that then, once I get a guesstimate about what that value is, I then take that back to where they said they wanted, you know, whatever the number they said they wanted for financial security, I can take that number and add it, the after-tax number, and add it to what their current resources are. And that determines a gap for us. And then that helps us know how much planning, what kind of planning needs to be done to close that gap. Great. And for our listeners here at Business Creators Radio Show, this is turning out to be kind of a matter-of-fact type interview. So what I'm going to encourage everybody to do is, if you're listening to this live, make sure that you subscribe to our iTunes channel so you can get the download feed. If you're already on iTunes and you're listening to this on iTunes, be sure to listen to it a couple times and have your notepad open. I personally have my notepad out right now, and I'm taking notes because I want the slight edge in my business. I want to have a saleable asset. I want to know what the true value of my business is. When I host the Business Creators Radio Show, I'm not only the host, but I'm also a student just like you out in the audience with my pen and my notepad looking for what I can gain. So if I'm learning from Randy, you certainly have a lot to learn from Randy Long here. And with that being said, here's the question that I think is going to be kind of a zinger. So now following your formula, Randy, we have an idea of what this firm thinks the business is worth or what you think the business is worth. Now, uh, what percentage of owners do you think are ever happy or agree with that number? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think that typically you'll have somewhere between 40 and maybe 50% or so that would actually agree with the number. Most business owners, though, um, most business owners think their company is worth more than it really is. Once in a while I get a company that, um, or a family that thinks the company is worth a, um, a lot less. 
So what, as an example, I had one a few years ago. The family thought the business was worth about 20 to 25 million. Right. And within a year of that time, right at a year, we sold it for just around 100 million. So wow. they just didn't have a concept of what it meant to um, to get multiples for um, the industry they were in and the fact that it was big enough to to play in the big leagues, kind of, if if you will. So we were able to get a much better multiple than they anticipated. So sometimes you find them think that think it's worth uh, less than it is, but it is most companies do think it's worth more than it is. Wow. So what we're discovering here is in many cases, the value is actually greater than they think it is because I've always thought that it was, and as I said in the introduction to our episode here today, that it's actually a lot less because we find ourselves more the business than we thought we were. Right. But that was a business which, which the, to your point earlier, that was a business that was built in such a way that the revenues were recurring, the revenues were growing, um, it was, uh, you know, dependable revenues and systems and procedures, and it was a first-class operation. And so each of these little pieces, you know, that, that go to what we call value catalysts, Yes. They um, act incrementally add value and add value and add value. So the more you do, the better you do um, on each of these value catalysts, the better of a, of a multiple you can typically expect. And so it is, it's all about preparation and execution. Very interesting. So I just wanted to capture a couple of those things. You mentioned systems, which is a very big deal. If you're looking to buy a company, you want the systems to be in place. You mentioned recurring revenue. That's also very important. So you know there's a financial base to begin with. One of the things that we at the Business Creators Institute do with our titanium-level clients is we work with them on developing recurring revenue opportunities. So rather than have to go out and chase the business and close all these new sales, they're getting ongoing revenue from what they already have. Because sometimes just a little bit of recurring revenue is enough to keep your business afloat should you decide to take a vacation or maybe you just hit a dry spell. The recurring revenue can be enough to keep your bills paid, your contractors taken care of, and the lights on. Uh, It's it's amazing. Sometimes just $1,000 a day in recurring revenue is all it takes. Another thing I'd like to point out, and this is just my own experience, is let's say I'm going to come up with a hypothetical example here, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I think I'm right, but let me know. Okay. Uh, and if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. I, I am thinking of, let's say somebody wanted to sell steaks. So they wanted to have their own uh, distributorship where people go to their website and people can order steaks online. Now, I'm vegan myself, so I'm not going to be eating these steaks, but let's say I was going to sell them. Now, I recognize a great market opportunity. Now, I don't want to be selling steaks forever. I just think there's a market for it right now. Uh, But in three years, I may want to sell out to one of the larger distributors of food online, one of these larger companies. So in thinking of the saleability, I'm going to be focusing on my systems. I'm going to be focused on having a recurring revenue model. So every month people are automatically getting a shipment go out. You know, they don't even have to do anything. Their card gets charged and another box of steaks go out. Automatic revenue that as long as they're eating the steaks, they're never going to cancel. And it's one less trip to the grocery store. Uh, But here's where I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm going to think about the company that I would like to ultimately buy me out. And I'm going to become their customer, and I'm going to study what they do. How do they set up their website? What technology do they use to collect the orders? What merchant processor are they using? Uh, When they ship the steaks, 
where are they having them ship from? Who's the distributor? Who's the, uh, you know, who, who's the source of, of the beef? I'm going to be looking at what packaging they use, what size boxes, what company, uh, what kind of wrap they use, how they freeze it, where they get the ice. Because when I want this other company to acquire me, I want to be doing all these things that that company is already doing so they can look at my systems and say, hey, we really don't have to do a whole lot of anything because we're already doing it the way we do it. This is a very easy acquisition with a very, with a very low, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, whether it's consolidation. Low risk. Low risk, yeah. Yeah, not only that, but they have very little to do with their systems because you're already using all the same vendors. That's right. That's yeah, right. so, so so I'm pretty much you know, on the right base there. You are. That's I think that's uh, you're becoming a student of what your goals are is really important, which is frankly why I wrote the book so that the that the business owner could be a student of what it means to exit, so that when they're ready to go, they know processes, uh, people, um, product, all the things that they really need to know to pull this off. Because there aren't, unfortunately, aren't enough people like me around the country. Because um, you know the the my age, if you will, the whole um, baby boomer generation is starting to go through the retirement world, and so there's a huge percentage of people, fifty percent or so of the business owners will transition within the next five years, and that's wow. a huge market. So so it's a it's kind of getting to be a big deal. Um, anyway, back to the the value catalyst. One more, which I'd like to mention, is a really really important one. Typically, is a stable management team, and one in particular that's capable of taking the business to the next level. So if I'm going to, again, what we talked about um, minimizing risk to the buyer, if a buyer knows that he can buy a company, not only does it have processes and procedures and product and all the things that look good, but he also knows that the management team is stable and is capable of, of growing the business to the next level without the business owner, then there's a whole bunch of companies that are not just the companies that have a, a reason to buy it, but actually companies that might just like to buy it because they want to own the business. So you open up the number of possible buyers, which of course we like to do when we're taking a, a business to sale. We want a controlled auction. We don't want to negotiate one-on-one -on -one with somebody that wants to buy us. That puts us at a disadvantage. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole science, if you will, to preparing for that exit, not just on a personal and business level, but also on a marketing level. So what you're saying is, if I heard this correctly, you could set up your business in such a way where one of your potential value catalysts, as you say, is you have a great management team and another company might want to come in just because they want to hire all your managers. So they just say, well, hell, we'll just buy the whole company. Then we'll have all the managers. That's a possibility. Or they want to buy the business because it's a turnkey business and they like the numbers it produces. They like the market it's in. They like everything about it, but they don't Maybe they don't want to run it themselves, but they're happy to buy it because you've got somebody that already runs it quite well without you. That's also very good to think about, especially when we talk about diversification, because the smart way, if you ask me, and this is something I'm, you know, one of my own personal goals for 2016 going into 2017, is by mid-2017 to find myself in at least three separate businesses because I want to diversify those streams of income. Now I'm not going to have time yeah. to run three businesses. So I'm looking to either acquire or quickly develop something that's really not going to require a whole lot of my time because I'm just not going yeah, to have it, but I want that revenue. It's becoming more common to um, in the family office side of the world. And also 
um, just uh, companies are are you know wanting to acquire other companies just to diversify their own risks in their own markets themselves. So you end up with more like the Berkshire Hathaway kind of model, which is a master company buying a whole bunch of other companies that make quite a nice little portfolio. Right. I understand. That's what. Yeah, that's what the private equity world really is all about. A lot of these companies, they're buying and uh, for their own portfolios. Some of them they keep, and some of them they they transition, they grow them, and three years later they flip them or you know for sale. So, depending on what the goals of the of the PE firm is. Understood. Now here's another topic I want to get into, and this is shifting gears a little bit. Have any of your okay. clients, Randy, have any of your clients or any prospective clients? gotten so happy about their appraisal that they've just gone out and tried to see if they could get any other offers on their business? Or do you have any experience with people getting overly enthusiastic or angry even and ruining the outcome of the sale? Yeah, yeah. So what what I just mentioned before about um, it's generally not wise to try to go and negotiate either a solicited or unsolicited offer on your own because what you end up doing, unfortunately, is you're negotiating one on one, which the company that's buying you is probably better at it, bigger at it, and maybe has done it many times. So you're at a disadvantage that way. Right. And secondly, sometimes businesses will, you know, it's a dangerous world out there. So I have a friend of mine who had a financial services company and got an unsolicited offer from a big, um, a big bank, and the big bank came in and. Uh, started going through his processes and his procedures and on and on, and things kept dragging on. And um, so he got a little bit concerned about it, and he went and talked to a friend of his who was a, a mergers and acquisitions guy and told him what was going on. And his friend wisely told him, these people are not ever going to close on this sale. They are on a fishing expedition. And the reason that he knew that is because he realized that they were not even working through what's called the definitive agreement, which is ultimately the negotiation of the purchase. Instead, they were rifling through all of the particulars of what they wanted to learn but weren't working forward on the purchase itself. So you've got to be careful, first of all, that you don't give it away. Secondly, that the idea that you don't poison the well, because if you try to handle it on your own, the sale doesn't close and it gets out in your area that somebody engaged you and couldn't close, then the then everybody else around says, "Wow, I wonder why that didn't close. Maybe we should avoid that because they found out something that we, you know, we might not know it, but they didn't want to close. So maybe that's a red red flag for us. We should avoid. Wow. So we call that poisoning the well. So you've got to be very careful. Sometimes you only get to do this, you know, once, and so you want to do it well, and you want to have qualified people to help you get this done because ultimately." Um, a business typically represents 70 to 90 percent of a business owner's total net worth. So, you know, you want to do this well and you want to do it right. That's why this is worth planning. It typically is your largest asset, and most business owners will only do it once in their lifetime. Wow. See, that is something that I didn't even think of, which is why, uh, which is why we really want to listen closely to what you're sharing with us today. There's that old saying: "Good news travels fast." Uh, you try and sell something, yes, and word gets out. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, – this is one of my favorite movies of all time, that movie Wall Street from 1987 with uh, Michael Douglas yeah. and Charlie Sheen. And, uh, and I remember, uh, I remember uh, they, they did one of the scenes in Gordon Gecko's office, and I think it was the one where he met 
Bud Fox for the first time, and he kept taking all these phone calls. And one of the calls mm-hmm. was he was instructing one of his buyers or one of his brokers to buy just enough of a company's stock where he could get his eyes on the financials and see what was really going on, where they're cooking the books or whether it was really financially sound. So sure. the strategy was very simply. He just wanted to become a big enough of a shareholder in that company so that he could get access to their financials and find out what was going on, which, you know, pretty right. smart if you ask me. Uh, so, right. so, so the same thing could happen in your own neighborhood if you're looking to sell a small to medium-sized business and you find somebody that tried to buy your business, but they, you couldn't close the deal. You couldn't sell the business. And it's going to have people wondering, well, this other company looked at their financials. Are these people, are their books in order? Are they really profitable? Is this a, is this a house of cards? What the heck's going on here? And you might be stuck in that business for a long time. You, you may be because after you, after it kind of gets out, then you've, you're going to have to have some years go by, maybe even a, another market cycle before you might be able to, to get past that issue. So it, it potentially can be a problem to you. So you do need to be very careful. Yeah. Now, in this day and age, as we know, uh, in, you know, with instantaneous media and social media, pretty much anything you do can make news at any time. It's, it's crazy how things can go viral, and within minutes, you can be an international sensation, either good or bad. And that's why I bring up this next thing. Uh, you know, I guess I've heard of lawyers, attorneys, advising their clients to not speak to the press or to stay away from their legal opponent, and then the client goes out and they blab to the media, or they go and make that phone call to their opponent, like, what the heck? And then it's to their detriment. So when you talk about areas of weakness, and you bring those areas of the business up, how do you know if you have enough time to make those changes in order to exit what you want, or when you want, rather? Yeah, that that goes back to the idea of the value catalysts again, and what what shape your business really is in. And sometimes you you honestly don't know because you you haven't been growing a business that is one which is intended to be sold. You're more growing a, what I call a lifestyle business. Right. That's a business that might make good money, but it's built around you and employs you and keeps you busy, and you may love it. But when you go to to the point where you're trying to sell the business, a lifestyle business is going to bring far less money than a business that is a standalone, operationally free of the owner kind of a business. So right. um, how far in advance it's going to, to take you before you are um, you know, ready to transition is going to depend on what your goals are and where you're starting. So um, you know, back to the whole idea of the value catalyst, which we mentioned before, do you have a stable management team? Do you have a growing recurring revenue base? Do you have diverse customer or supplier bases? This is one where sometimes, you know, when you're looking through the eyes of the, of the buyer, and if I'm going to look at your company and you've got 100 clients that generate that revenue, or you've got three, which one of those is the riskier business? The, the one with the three, obviously. That, absolutely. And so and we might think of it as, well, it's a simple business because we only have three, three clients or three customers, but the buyer is going to look at that and say, wow, very high risk on one or two of these people leaving the company. I'm going to have to discount the heck out of this business because there's too much risk involved, and so my purchase price is going to have to show that and reflect it. So that, that's another example. We talk about uh, realistic growth strategies. If you're going to sell a business, they're going to look backwards, first of all, and say, how, what, what is your um, growth rate 
been in the past, you know, five or ten years. And if you have a wonderfully growing business, that's a that's a big positive for you. But they're also going to want to know what is the growth strategy to take this to the next level. And that needs to be a growth strategy that is realistic, well thought out, um, well um, displayed. You know, you're able to articulate it, and it looks like something. And you've got a plan in place to execute it. That is the kind of thing that adds value to your multiple also because business owners, I mean buyers want to buy businesses that have growth in them. More than any other thing, they prefer growth. So in other words, if I was going to buy a company that had a million dollars of, of revenue over three years, that would give me, I mean a million, a million, a million, that's three million dollars of revenue and I might purchase that for X. But if the company is 500 and then a million and then a million five, that company I'm going to pay X times something because I have a growth rate that is impressive. Right. That, that's, that's something definitely to think about, and I think you're absolutely right about that. So, uh, again, we just have to think about these key value catalysts, and do we have these in place in our businesses? And you also bring something up that's very interesting, which is the lifestyle business, which we see a lot in the business creator space. People create a business to support their lifestyle, and maybe saleability isn't part of it. Uh, what about planned obsolescence? I see a lot of companies out there that are designed with the idea that within three, three to five years, they're actually going to go out of business because they're going to start another business afterwards. Uh, there is a division right. of the Business Creators Institute. I'll say this candidly. Uh, we, have, we have two divisions right now, and we're opening two more divisions over the course of the summer of 2016. But one of the existing divisions is designed around planned obsolescence, where it's not going to be here in three years. We're using it to fund our entry into another market, which is a perfectly fine thing to do, as I say. So what about sure. a business where part of it is saleable? Like, let's say, for instance, we have uh, a consulting firm. Let's use a consulting firm, for example. Now, the consultant themselves serve a certain number of clients, and there are certain things that only they can do because it's their brain. I mean, unless you can take their right. brain out of their head and sell it to another investor, you know, once they're out of the business, they're out of the business. That's just all there is to it. That value is gone. But there may be other areas of the business. Maybe they have uh, a coaching program with a team of coaches, and it has a lot of recurring revenue. Maybe they have information products. Maybe they have a software that people use and pay monthly for access to. So what happens sure. to valuation when the business is partially saleable, and how do we deal with that? So let's say that maybe there's a division of this company that has recurring subscriptions to a software, or it has a team of coaches who could theoretically work for anybody, but there's also the business owner that, for that part of the business, they are the business. There's no way around it. How do you deal with that? Right. right. Well, typically, the, the company, when it comes in to buy, it's going to look at that company just like you just described it. And that is there's a portion of this company which is worth, you know, uh, I'll call it 10x because it has recurring revenue, it's got a growth model that works, it's got really cool software, it's got um, a sales machine that just keeps pumping the work out, and it's got, um, it's got maybe software or processes that can be leveraged. And so that part of the business they're going to pay a nice multiple for. They may go back and look at the other pieces of the business and realize that um, this part of the business doesn't fit our model, so they might actually not offer for the whole company. They may only offer for the part they want, or they might buy the whole thing and then sell off or shut down the piece that they don't need. 
So I've I've seen both of those or all of those things done, frankly. Okay, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, yeah. uh, you know, we've talked about value catalysts. We've talked about um, being careful about how you go through the process of selling, trying not to do it yourself, trying not to be in a situation where word gets out that somebody tried to buy your company and you just couldn't close the deal. So what else do we need to think about? Um, I think you mentioned in the green room business durability and some other things. So tell us about that. I, I did. Durability is a really big deal. It's one of the first things that we deal with when we take a client on. And the, the business durability issue um, has to do with what I'll call contingency planning. We want to mitigate risk or eliminate risk. Those are our goals, and we, we go and we look both in the, in the business level and also at the family level to make sure as much as possible that we eliminate the kinds of things that can show up that, that might destroy the business. So as an example, I had, a, um, I had a trucking company that came to us some years ago and uh, did business in the state of California and moved a lot of equipment for what's called Caltrans there, which is the, um, which is the state agency that builds roads, roads. So they come to see us. They've been in business for probably 20 years, a very profitable business, and the man comes to me, and I realize that he is not incorporated. He's running that business as a sole proprietorship. Mm. And I said, you know, um, sir, why are you not incorporated for – you know, to protect your risk side of life here in the case of litigation. And he said, well, my CPA said that I, I didn't need to be incorporated. I said, your CPA may be a good CPA, but he's a, la a lousy lawyer. And I happen to be a lawyer, too. So right. we, quickly, we quickly turned that, um, that guy. We dealt his first risk minimization was to incorporate him and to buy him. The second step was to buy him a $10 million liability umbrella policy and within two months or so after finishing the work of this contingent planning for this guy um, one of his trucks is running free down empty except they have a steel bar strapped on the back of that truck and that steel bar works its way off that truck and bounces down that freeway into an oncoming car in a, a car that's you know behind them on it goes oh. to the windshield and and it was not pretty now that is a bad situation no matter how we spin it but Fortunately for the family, at least, this guy had adequate resources in insurance now that were able to pay the family for the damage that was done, which they should have, which they should have been paid, frankly. And there was no fight over it. The insurance was fully paid, and this guy, though, was able still to keep his business and uh, still operates, frankly, today. So, <laughs> you know, it it was uh, contingency planning. That's contingency for that kind of risk. There's other contingencies like um, in the opening part of my book, we talk about a story of an architect that had um, – he was the only person that held the license in the, in the firm. Uh -huh. And then upon – he died at about 51 years of age, 27 employees, and the company imploded because all the, comp the employees left because there was nobody else with a license, and there was no – plan in place to transition or sell the, the company. So, you know, you just have to – I have lots and lots and lots of these stories because I've been doing this for 30 years. But the point is business durability, we can plan for a long-term exit, but I don't know if the good Lord's going to give you another 20 years. He may only have tomorrow. Right. So we want to be ready whenever that is for – so we, we, our goal for our clients is to get the business in order so that it's always ready to sell or transition no matter when or how that occurs. 
You know, I, I was thinking of something here. This is a slight tangent, but I remember when I was first starting out in entrepreneurship. It was 13 years ago. I just, I got the entrepreneurial bug, and I knew enough to know that the first step I needed to take was to form at least a limited liability company, get some wrapping around it. The second sure. thing to do was to hire a top-notch CPA who niched in small to medium-sized businesses. I've had the same CPA for 13 years. Fantastic company, great work. Uh, when we transferred the business operations to Nevada, we even kept the same accountant in Pennsylvania because they're, they're, they're all set up to do business here in Nevada anyway because they had other clients sure. in Las Vegas. But why change? And, you know, it can be done right. remotely. Second. And the third thing was going along with number one and number two is to get an EIN number and get the whole taxation thing straightened out. Now, I told people sure. that I spent the probably about 1800 to $2,000 to get all this stuff done. And wouldn't you know it, I had about three people in a row come up to me and say, well, you know, I, and, and these are entrepreneurs, right? Really what they are is, uh, and you know, what, what I remember were those people that, uh, that uh, basically jump out of their mineral management job, make a consulting practice out of it, and they run around at 100 miles an hour with a cell phone stapled to their ear day in and day out. Not exactly leverage. But uh, yeah, I think you know right. what I'm talking about. People who are in transition, who have not yet had the breakdown that lets them know that they really need to leverage and grow something. So sure. 201, they all told me about their friend who's a lawyer who told them that all they needed to do was a sole prop and not to worry about any of that LLC hocus pocus. And here's the key phrase. They didn't say my lawyer. They said my friend who's a lawyer. Right. It's like I. Right. Uh, yeah, I asked for the name of this friend who's a lawyer uh, for two reasons. Number one, because I wanted to find out what was really going on with the relationship, and I, the way I phrased it was, any chance I could have their name and number because you know, I might want to give this a second look just to make sure I'm not wasting my time here. And to a one, all three of these people said, "Well, I don't know. Let me check with them to see if they're taking on new clients." I'm thinking, huh? Yeah, right. A lawyer not taking yeah. on new clients? Uh-huh. Okay. Number two, Rare. if a lawyer – yeah, if a lawyer's name and number actually did emerge because, you know, they didn't speak to a lawyer. They don't have a friend who's a lawyer. But even if they did, no. I'm thinking, I want to know what lawyer not to hire because you being an attorney, how many of your colleagues would recommend somebody go sole prop? Uh, I, I never recommend sole right. proprietorship. Never. Never. Yeah, I, I mean, for I mean, for because you got your legal protection issues, you have your taxation right. benefits. You get so many taxation benefits from having a corporate structure and an EIN number and having that corporate veil. And then the third thing is saleability. If you don't have a separate corporate structure, how do you detach that from yourself personally? I mean, I mean, have you ever yeah. dealt with that? Is is that the nightmare that I think it is? Yeah. What what I'll say is no one, and I mean no one, will take you seriously if you are running a sole proprietorship. Right. I get it. I just, yeah, if you're running a, and not only that, I don't, theoretically you can run a sole proprietorship and keep a separate set of books. So it's possible and can be done, but when you're going to the point where you're selling and you're taking what you do out to the public, they're going to judge you by certain criteria. Being a sole proprietor tells them that you are not um, sophisticated at any, at any level, frankly. Right, right. So, it, which the whole thing about which you you just passed through kind of on the way there was making sure that you have a team that is appropriate for your own business and and your exit so 
And, it, and the kind of team you need ultimately has to do with the size and the complexity of the business. But, so the bigger it is, the more subspecialties I need to pull it off because there's more issues. But either way, whether you're growing a business or you're preparing to transition a business, you need a team that is appropriate and is capable of growing with you and is frankly is ahead of you so that you, they can provide um, and recognize issues and do planning that will protect you and help you grow and prepare for a transition. Yeah. So basically what we're talking about is having those people around you who can advise you of the liabilities and the areas of exposure. So obviously an accountant is one, a good CPA who specializes in business taxation, not just the person who does your 1040, although it would help them right. do the 1042 because if you have the same firm, this has been my personal experience and others may vary, I've always had the same firm do both my business and my personal. That way they can, and we do two completely separate filings, but they can see the transitions between the two and they can see all the opportunities to make sure I get the maximum legal leverage from having a corporate structure and how it can benefit sure. me personally and the company. So that's good. Uh, but you know, obviously you know, having an attorney is good. Um, who else should we have? Well, it isn't just an attorney. I, frankly, I need a, an estate planning lawyer. I Thank need you. a business lawyer. And when I get ready to sell, I'm going to need a transaction lawyer. And those are typically three different lawyers. Right. Um, I need, of course, a really good property casualty agent to advise me. And while I'm talking about that, I like to have my property casualty agent actually act as a, as a consultant to me, not just selling me something. So right. I like to have the, the property casualty guys go into the businesses and, you know, and do sort of an audit, if you will, of what's going on because I don't want holes in my plan. We, we talked about uh, mergers and acquisitions or, or, or uh, sometimes the business brokers on the smaller end of things would be a part of a team. Um, I like to use the, the M&A firm as a business appraiser, but there are lots of um, a number of other business appraisers and uh, sometimes CPA firms and sometimes dedicated appraiser firms that can do that work too. But suffice it to say that, um, you know, and also uh, bankers sometimes if you're buying, then you may be buying part of that company with leverage and your banker is going to help you put up some of the money. So you need a good relationship with the banker. So there's, you can see that the, the number of people that become important to you grow with your own complexity as the company grows. And that's a really big point. Right. Yeah, that's very important to, to think about right there. Uh, so since we're talking yeah. about teams, Randy, uh, since we're talking about teams, um, how many people does the average business need to have on its team? I mean, we covered uh, people to advise you of the liabilities and things like that, but what are we talking about in terms of actually having a team? Well, in general, a team should, I'll call for a, a decently sized, small to medium sized company. Right. I think they need a banker, they need a CPA firm, they need an exit planner and a business lawyer, they need a wealth manager, they need a property casualty agent. They need those things in place. And, um, and I like, and when we go to, you know, one, every few years, three to five years or so, even if you're not selling, it's nice to get a business appraisal done right. for all kinds of reasons because there's planning reasons for the family reasons. It gives you an idea of how you're doing relative to what your goals are. So, you know, you, and then the transaction side of things, the M&A firm and the transaction lawyer show up um, roughly a year to year and a half before the, the sale um, would close. So, you know, you start adding these people at the time you need them, but 
my book, as an example, gives you a really good idea who the players are and when you should have them. So it's it's a uh, you know too often I see people that have outgrown their lawyers or accountants or whatever it is. I had one case that the guy came to see me and was all, very proud about how much money he sold his company for, and we spent some time talking to him as I went through the process with him and asked him questions. He got a little bit more embarrassed as uh, based on the questions I asked him, and what came out was this guy ended up using his lawyer who was a friend of his that was a general practice lawyer, gave him some advice, and he got another set of advice from his CPA, and he tried to take both of their advice and mix it together, and he ended up with a mess, and oh boy. he clearly sold the company for probably less than half of what he should have sold it for. Right. So be, having the right people at the table is a very big deal. I can I can see that, and I can also see how synergies matter, too, because if you have your CPA over here giving one set of advice, and you have your attorney over there giving a completely opposite set of advice, you got to get those two together, and we got to figure out what's best for the business as a whole, and we better, and, make, and some, that's, yeah, better make some decisions whether or not uh, this is really a compatible team or whether we're all on the same page, and, and it's not a matter of who's right or who's wrong. It's a matter of what's best. Right, and that exit planner role, which is the one that I typically typically play is making sure the right people with the right experience and are at the table, and then making sure that we all talk things through and get a, an agreement amongst the professionals about what should happen. So, um, you know, you need sophisticated players when it comes time to go to battle. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That's absolutely right. Now, I have a couple questions from the audience, people who saw that you were going to be on the Business Creators Radio Show, knew what this episode was going to be about, and just wanted to throw a couple things out there. Uh, first of all, since we're talking about teams, it's kind of interesting that a couple of our questions come in the area of team building. And the first question is, when it comes to having a team, what should that, that, that team status be? Should they be 1099s? Should they be like other firms where you just work with them and you pay them an invoice because they're also an incorporated entity? Should they be employees? Should they be hourlies, exempt, non-exempt? What should we be doing here? Yeah, the answer to that is that they should be, um, they should be professionals. They should not be on your payroll. Uh, they should be working within professional firms. So it's, it almost never makes sense unless you're what I'll call a, if you're running a family office and you're you you know you you've got a hundred million to a billion dollars or so that you're running. You may you may justify having some of the the lawyers or accountants on staff, but even then, um, when it comes time to doing special things like selling the business and such, you typically want people that specialize in doing that. So um, the team here really should be people that are are particularly suited for the purpose that you're having them. Yes, you can have an accountant in-house to do some of your accounting and that sort of thing. But when I go to do my taxes, I want a, I want a tax expert, as an example. Right. And you're, you're not going to have a tax expert on staff because they're going to have to spend – it takes a lot of money. My own experience, continuing education, running a company, staying on the edge, um, being sharp, knowing what the IRS is doing, what the tax courts are doing – that is not a position that you typically have in-house. 
Right, very true. So let's talk about physicians you do typically have either in-house or close to the house. Let's say that you have a service that needs taken care of, and you need people on your team to help deliver that service and take care of your customers. What about the people who sure. answer the phones? What about the people who do tech support? What about the people who run sure. the website? What about the people who do the social media? What should we be doing here? Should these be uh, 1099s, professional firms, employees, exempt, non-exempt? What should we be doing here as pertains to legal legality? and saleability. Right. So if you're, if you're going to ask the question about who is going to be considered an employee versus who's an independent contractor, right. the IRS sets forth a, a number of tests that, um, that you can go through and circumstantially look at yours and see how they align. So if, for instance, your um, IT guy only works for you, he's an employee. Right. If you've got 10 other clients, then he's a 1099, no doubt. But so it is a facts and circumstances test and not one that I could probably tell you exactly here. But right. I will tell you that, that um, typically if they only work for you and they work um, at your direction, and especially if they work on your, in your business, like on your site, those three things together by themselves are probably enough to always make sure that they're employees. So I'm, I don't give tax advice, but I will tell you that um, – you have to be real careful in this area of yeah. who's an employee and who's not. So Yeah, because I'm just thinking of a firm coming in and buying your company or like an investor coming in and buying your company, and who do they take with them? I mean, because if you have employees, I mean, don't your obligations to your employees, like let's say that you are a big enough company that you need to provide them health insurance or you've already been giving them health insurance regardless of size, uh, unemployment compensation liabilities, uh, all kinds of things that would transfer sure. to the buyer. So as a buyer, I would be looking at that as well. It's like, you know, how many sets of liabilities do I have to buy here? Because if I have an employee, it's a lot harder to get rid of them if it turns out that they really don't belong here because now I have to comply with all kinds of legal things. I could get into uh, a big ruckus over unemployment. There's a lot of things that could happen. Whereas if I'm dealing with sure. a 1099 or I'm dealing with a professional firm, uh, you know, unless there's some contract with specific terms on how long the relationship lasts and the process for getting out of the relationship, generally speaking, I can just say, okay, well, it looks like our current, uh, our current term is done on the 30th. So thanks. Right. And and there are, at a time of a transition, uh, many times um, there will be people that will be let go. Uh, sometimes no one is let go. Let go. Uh, had one of these not too long ago, closed um, a few months ago, which was a, um, a software company, and not one single person was let go. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it, it does depend on the company, but, um, and that's part of the the vetting process for the seller the is how much what what's important to him about the sale does he want to make sure jobs are provided for his people does because sometimes i've I've even had companies where they bought the company closed it down and then moved ever everybody that they wanted to another area you know so the company didn't didn't even stay in town after the sale so you have to that's part of the discussion and building the exit strategy for the owner and determining what's important for him in the sale. Yeah, that yeah, that's something to think about too. Because also, if I'm looking at um, acquiring a company and all they deal with are 1099s and 
professional service firms, I could be dealing with a turnover issue just in and of itself for a couple reasons. Because um, whoever I'm buying this company from, if they go into business somewhere else, those 1099s and those professional firms might just follow them and say to me as the new buyer, sorry, we don't want any more clients. We're full. They could do that to me. And so then I have to replace all those competencies. Or uh, they... Or, you know, it's very similar to, uh, you know, when a, when a new management comes into town, and even if it's a good buyer and you're, you have a positive corporate culture, you're always going to have that 10 to 15, maybe 20% of people that just like the old culture so much better, they say, the heck with this, I'm out of here. With professional sure. firms, I mean, just like, uh, you know, it's one thing when you're an employee and, you know, you're expected to give notice and there's all kinds of transitional issues with taking you out of being an employee. But if I'm a professional firm, if I run a professional firm and I'm invoicing them for professional services or I'm a 1099, I can just say to them, hey, we're done. Bye. Nice knowing you. Yeah. And now, Correct. as the buyer, I have a lot of competencies to replace in a big hurry. Yes, you do. And, of course, sophisticated buyers are going to know that, and they're going to price that into their purchase anyway. But it does help you, that idea we talked about having a, a stable management team. Right. Having a stable management team sometimes involves the idea of building in what's called stay bonuses. Have you ever heard that term before, stay bonus? Uh, could you explain that for our listeners, please? Sure, absolutely. The stay bonus side of things has to do with making sure that um, either at a sale or maybe the death of an owner, some, something that triggers a payoff to key employees to make them be willing to stay for a year or two years or maybe even three years past that event so that the company retains value and is capable of being sold for more as a result of that or capable of surviving because they stay in the event of the death especially. So you have key things that potentially can either make the company worth more money so if I'm buying the company and I want that stable management team, but, but the, buy, the, the owner hasn't tied them down, I have risk in buying the company because if I want the stable management team and I buy it and they all leave the month after I buy it, I've, I've overpaid what I thought I was getting. So yeah. if, I'm the, if I'm the buyer of the, of the company, I want to know that there's some sort of uh, contract in place that's going to hold the employees there so that I know I'm getting what I paid for. I see what you mean. So the stay bonus incentivizes them to stick around for a while, see how things turn out, yes. rather than just turn and run as soon as the new owner's name goes on the door. That's right. It incentivizes them to do that, and it means that I'm paid more for the company, so I can justify paying them a portion of it because the company's worth more money because the stable management team is worth money to the buyer. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's awesome. Now, we have uh, about four minutes left here. So I have just one more real quick question for you. Um, okay. you, know, you know, Randy, I see, I see you're a family man. Um, and I yeah. see that that's permeating into your business where you have some people in your own family uh, working for your business. So, what, so and, and that's awesome. I love that. Now, what if one of these days, one of your children or one of your nephews or nieces or your brother or what have you wanted to buy the company? Are there any special things we need to bear in mind for transfer of family businesses from one owner to another within the same family, other than let's make sure we get along at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that um, in dealing with the family, that making sure things are done at what I would call arm's length transactions are really important. And okay. because the last thing you, you want to hear is a year or two after the fact that, you know, you cheated me or you, you know, you 
deluded me or why did you let me buy that when you knew it was going to fail or you know all these kinds of things. So it's really important to have full disclosure and um, in every way possible ha adequate due diligence because too often I've seen people that are willing to buy a company without doing true due diligence because after all it was my brother or it was my you know, my uncle or whatever the case is, and so they didn't really do the kind of due diligence maybe that they should have done, and so they found out after the fact that things weren't quite the way they thought they were. So I would say that due diligence is just as important, full disclosure is very important, and arm's length transactions are very important. So that way we can eliminate or mitigate anyway the possibility that family will end up in some sort of a conflict later. That's very important to bear in mind, too, because there are some folks that say, you know, don't dip your pen in the company inkwell, which means don't date at work. And then there's those that say, you got your business, you got your family, you got your personal, keep all those things separate. But in many cases, yeah. your, your company being an example, uh, and a great example, is that sometimes family gets involved because the children do want to follow the parents. Or sometimes the parents follow the children. I've seen it work that way, too. And uh, they Absolutely. all love the business. And, uh, you know, thinking of yourself, I mean, who, who better for you to transition your life's work to than somebody who's in your life? Yeah, and if you look at it as a way while you're raising your kids, you know, you get a chance to teach them things that they won't learn at school. Uh, they won't learn from anybody else. And you can teach them a culture and you can teach them how to work and you can teach them how to think as an entrepreneur, and that is a very, very valuable education. Absolutely, and, uh, and, I, and I definitely appreciate that. So we're near the top of the hour here. So first of all, uh, first of all uh, Randy, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Everybody, Randy Long of longbusinessadvisors.com. And real quick, uh, for those of our listeners who may be interested in exploring this further, um, how do you serve business creators? Uh, just wrap up for us and tell us how they can work with you. Yeah, so um, they can, of course, check out our website that explains the things that we do. But ultimately, we we work with people that we resonate with and, frankly, that we like. So right. <laughs> uh, you know how important that is, too. So, you know, we do an, an exploratory meeting with the, with the potential clients and gives us a sense of what we're getting into and who they are and, and what they're looking to accomplish. And if we feel like we can add what I would call substantial value to that family, yep. then we will engage them. Yep, and we don't think we can – yeah, you get it. Go ahead. Oh, I, I get it. I, I get it, absolutely. I, I get so excited about this. And the other thing I'm excited about is I want to make sure that our listeners visit the website randymlong.com uh, so they can see your book, The Braveheart Exit, Seven Steps to Your Family Business Legacy. That's why we ended the interview on to talk about family because I wanted to transition into this. So I yeah, understand it the launched, just it, coming out. Yeah, it just launched last week on Amazon. Yeah. So it's out now. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, I encourage everybody to check that out. I know I'm going to be downloading my own copy because I want to learn about this. I don't have any immediate family I'm looking to transfer my business to, but I think I'm going to be learning a lot about um, understanding uh, exiting a company, saleability. Yeah. And these are things that I'm very interested yep. in. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I've loved the time with you. Thank you for having me on. And I, and I want to thank you very much, so much, for taking the time to help our business creators today. Everybody, uh, Randy Long, longbusinessadvisors.com, and check out his new book at randymlong.com. 
For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and on iTunes, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing.